0: This morning, I want you to look at the photograph that's on the screen. And you may wonder are those people the same size? And uh, I'd like for you to think about the word perspective for just a moment. Have you ever been tricked by an optical illusion? In fact, uh, I looked at a number of photos to use as an introduction this morning. And I came across people who were standing next to the leaning tower of Pisa, and they have their hand as if they're holding it up. A few years ago when we went to Egypt, some of our group were taking photos where they would put their hand on top of one of the pyramids. And obviously you know that no one is tall enough to put their hand on the top of the pyramid There's what's known as a forced perspective. That is where you get in a position and you take a photograph and it leaves the impression that something that is large is small or something close to you is much larger than it really is. When coming across this, and by the way someone posted these on Facebook so that's where I got the idea. And I thought about sin, and it's all a matter of perspective. It has to do with where you are standing and what you are viewing as you observe it as to whether you have perceived that it is something large or something small. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to look at some perspectives of sin. The first perspective we want to look at is our own sin. How do I look at sin in my own life? I would dare say that we all look at it as small. Number two, we want to look at the sins of others. How we view the sins that other people commit. And I dare say that most of us look at their sins as being large. But then you have to step back and realize you have to look at God's view. How does God view sin in our lives, yours and mine? And how does God view sin in general? Let's begin, first of all, with the idea of our own perspective. And as I'd already mentioned, I think most of us would look at sin in our own lives, and we tend to say they're not that large. For instance, if you go to the Old Testament, to 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 37 we read, and it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing. The King James American Sanders say it is, was a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took a wife, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. You look at Ahab, king of the northern kingdom. And for him to take a wife from another nation who worshipped another god, he said, that's not a big deal. It's trivial. It's small. Do you know today that most people, when you start talking about sin, particularly sin in someone's own life, well, you know, it's just getting a drink every once in a while. You know, it was just a little white lie. It wasn't a real big whopper. It wasn't something that bad. You've got to understand the sins that I committed, they were just real small sins. In fact, the world often thinks sin is funny. Frankly, I get disgusted with television. Were it not for some of the DIY shows, I probably would just want to quit altogether. But the truth is, we live in a generation where Comedians make fun of the sins that people commit. And you know what the Bible says, Proverbs fourteen nine: Fools mock at sin. For you and I to look at sin and laugh and think it's funny. We're only showing how foolish we are. But among the upright there is favor. Or you go to Proverbs 10 and verse 23. To do evil is like a sport to a fool. But a man of understanding has wisdom. You know, a lot of people have treated sinning just like it's a a favorite pastime, a favorite sport to them that they enjoy. In fact, Proverbs 26, verses 18 and 19, I think really illustrate what is a part of our society today. Solomon writes, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. You deceive your neighbor, you lie to him. And then say, oh, I was just a joke. Can't you take a joke? The truth is, sin is not a funny matter. Sin is not a joke. Sin's not small. But that's the way we tend to want to look at it. The Bible warns us against deceiving ourselves in such regards. You think about how most of us would look at ourselves and we really want to believe the best about ourselves. But in Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he that sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Many people want to believe that I can do bad things. I can sin. I can be evil. And then on the day of judgment, God will say, You have inherited eternal life. I'm sorry, but it's not going to be the case. How do I know that? Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, beginning with verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord and in the, by the Spirit of our God. Now I know there's a lot of people in the world today who have come up with this idea in our country, and it just seems like a snowball, an avalanche of homosexuality, gay marriage, and it's almost as if somebody's saying, You're going to accept it. Folks, we will not accept it. It's a sin and a sin that will keep someone out of heaven, just like any of these others. It's not a small thing. Hebrews 3 and verse 13 puts it on a personal basis by saying, But exhort one another daily, as long while it is called today, lest you any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We have got to urge one another, encourage one another, help one another daily to recognize that our own sins can cause hardness in our lives and cause us to be deceived about where we stand. Most of us, when we look at sin in our own life, find some sort of rationalization for it. We want to find an excuse to justify what we do. Now, I'll just give you a couple of real easy to understand illustrations. Here's a person who's gone out and committed adultery. They come back and they say, but you have to understand, my husband or my wife was showing me no affection whatsoever and so I had to... No, you didn't have to. You chose to go out and commit adultery. You have to understand, I can't look at sin in my life and rationalize it and justify it. Or here's a person, here's a liar who says, I don't want to hurt other people's feelings. I don't want to say anything that will upset someone. And so I will just tell a little white lie. Lies are not little and they're not white. You see, the problem is, that for each of us we want to look at sin in our own life and we want to make it small. But the second perspective, if you will, is that of sins of others. And isn't it surprising how that what I can see in my life appears to be so small and yet when I look at someone else and I see sin in their life, how great it appears and how large it appears, how obvious it is. I know you're aware of the passage that's coming, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 4. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, or you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now I want you to stop at that point, looking at verses 1 and 2. The measure... The perspective. You know, we're laying something beside it and doing some measuring on it. He says the same measure that you use to measure someone else's is going to be used to measure your own. And why do you look at the speck? This little small splinter, if you will. The small piece of sawdust in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank The beam that's in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank or a beam is in your own eye. What Jesus was trying to do in the Sermon on the Mount is to draw attention to the fact that many times something which is huge in our life we look at as small. Something which is small in someone else's life we look at as being huge. In John 8, you have a real illustration of this. John records, Now early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst... They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commanded us that we should that she such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus has raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, these people brought this woman to Jesus caught her in an act of sin. Just don't minimize that. This woman had sinned. Jesus said for her to go and sin no more. However, they brought her to Jesus demanding justice be performed, demanding that the law be fulfilled when they did not care about the law. They didn't care about the law at all. Because their only purpose of being there was duplicitous. They wanted to have some means to accuse Jesus. That's the only reason why they were there. Do you realize that a lot of times people look for sin in other people's lives? Not because their sin is grievous, but because they have a hatred of that person. And the sin in their own life is really bigger than the sin that's in that other person's life. But they're magnifying their sin. We tend to look more harshly at others because we only see the action and we do not see the motivation. See, here's the problem. When I have a sin in my life, I know why I committed that sin. I know what my motivation was. I know where my weaknesses are. It may be that as the Hebrew writer says, that sin which so easily ensnares us. And that may not be the sin that someone else has. But you see, the Bible talks about Paul saying, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this to himself or in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. Don't look at things superficially on the surface. Jesus will put it this way in John 7 and verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Our problem is is that we only look at a person and we see what they have done. We don't see their weaknesses. We don't see their motivation. We don't see their struggle against sin. And for that reason, we judge them harshly. Sometimes when we harshly judge people, we are doing the same thing ourselves. I want you to listen to Paul as he speaks in Romans 2, verses 1 through 4. You have to see the context here to fully appreciate this. In Romans chapter 1, he begins discussing the Gentile mind who has rejected having God in his knowledge. Verses 18 through 20. 18 through 22. He gets to the beginning of chapter 2 and he's talking about the Jewish person, how he looked at himself. And here's what he says, "...therefore you are inexcusable, O man." Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who practice the same things. But we know the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, old man, that you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you shall escape the judgment of God or you de- do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Do you think that you will escape if I condemn something in someone else, and I'm doing the same thing? Then do I not condemn myself? Many of you may remember a few years ago when the Jim. Gym- Baker scandal and the PTL club rose up. Of course, they're all false teachers. But among those who were the loudest critics was a man by the name of Jimmy Swaggert, who was also a television preacher. And he was one of the ones who was really, really bearing down hard, and then it was exposed that he himself was involved in immoral behavior. You see, the problem is people look at others and they tend to condemn in others what they themselves are practicing. David had this pointed out to him in a very forceful way. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan had described a situation where a man had taken another poor man's little ewe lamb and. Taken it and killed it and served it to his friends. Verse 5. So David's anger was aroused greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. And because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. David, you've got to realize you have done exactly what you condemned in other people. You know, when you look at sin, many times we look at it in our lives and we don't condemn it in our lives, but we look at other people and we do condemn it in their lives. There's a section in Matthew chapter 18. And we'll just look at a few of the verses here. There was... An unforgiving servant. He, he owed his master an enormous, a huge amount of money. And he went and it says in verse 26, The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, Pay me what you owe. Do you realize that when we look at sin in our own lives, what many of us do, we say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then we turn to our neighbor, our brother, and we see sin in his life, and we say, God, let him have it. Give him justice. I hope I'm illustrating the difference in perspective of where we stand as to the way we approach these things. The problem is we erroneously make ourselves the standard. In 2 Corinthians ten twelve, Paul writes, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. That's the problem, is we make ourselves the standard. We would say, if you have committed the same sin I've committed, yours is worse than mine. If you've committed a sin different than mine, oh, how bad yours is and how mine is not. We never want to be like the elder brother of Luke 15. We all know about the prodigal son who went into the far country. He wasted the inheritance he had received. He came back home penitent. Broken and sorry. When he came back home, the father was delighted to receive him back. When the elder brother arrives, there's joy, there's singing. And the response is in verse 28, but he would not, angry, would not go in. Therefore the father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have served you been serving you, and never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. We have the attitude that we've not done anything wrong, that all the problems are our brethren. And it's all because of the perspective that we develop. Having said that, my view of myself and your view of me or my view of you and your view of yourself really doesn't count. Let that sink in for just a moment. Let me prove that to you. First Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 4 and 5. Here's what Paul says. For I know nothing against myself. Yet I am not justified by this. But he who justifies me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. Why would Paul say, I don't know anything against myself, but that doesn't justify me? Because Paul had once been a persecutor of the church. Paul once had been imprisoning Christians. And you know how he did that? Acts 23 verse 1, and all good conscience. In fact, in Acts 26... He tells King Agrippa, I thought I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, none of us should ever become so arrogant to think, hey, I don't know I've done anything wrong, so I'm just fine. Do you suppose there is in us sin of which we may not be aware Do you suppose that some of us may have done things for which if we knew how bad it was would grieve deeply, but we don't know about it? You see, my evaluation myself does not make me righteous. God's does. And God knows the motivations of every one of our hearts. And that will be revealed on the day of judgment. Listen to 2 Corinthians 10.18. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commands. I can proclaim as loud and as strong as I can, I'm right. Or as the book says, I'm okay and you're okay, but that doesn't make it so. James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he talks about looking at our brother and harshly judging him, and he says... Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother or judge's brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you are a judge of the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? What he is discussing here is simply the fact, I'm not in a perspective to be your judge for eternity. I'm not in the perspective to know what sins may be hidden in your life or what sins may be exposed in your life. What has caused them? Only God is in that position. Now that doesn't change the fact that I have to treat people who have sinned and judge in a worldly sense as to whether or not I will walk with them But I do know that I have no right to judge one's eternal either approval or disapproval. Second of all, when I look at God and I see God's view of sin, it grieves Him. It makes Him sad. In Genesis chapter 6, right after God created this world and all of its beauty, all of its splendor, after He had made a beautiful man and woman and a beautiful marriage among them, a blessed earth, we get to this point. Then God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth. And He was grieved in His heart. God looked at sin and He saw sin and it pained Him. He was sorry. Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let me tell you, I know how God looks at sin in my life, and how He looks at sin in your life, He hates it. Two very simple, fast passages. Proverbs 6, 16-19. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven, are an abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in the running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. God hates that. Let me tell you something else God hates. Malachi 2.16 For the Lord God of Israel says that He hates divorce. Our world today doesn't even understand the concept of God hating that. Because people are dealing treacherously with their husbands and with their wives. God is grieved because He sees what sin does to both Him and to His beloved children. Isaiah fifty nine one and two: The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor His ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from Your God, and your sins have hidden His face so that He will not hear. Ezekiel thirty three eleven. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live, turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? God looks at his people and says, Please don't sin. I don't want to lose you. I can know what God thinks of sin by the way of, he acts toward me and toward you because of it. John 3.16 God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.6-8 talks about even while we were still without strength Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die because you and I were so good that He had to do it He died because we were so evil we needed it. And God wanted to save us from our sins, even while we were still sinners. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 1 Timothy 2, 4, Who desires all men to be saved. And to come to a knowledge of the truth. Second Peter three nine, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We ought to love ourselves and our brethren enough to have exactly the right view of sin in ourselves and in our brothers and sisters. Jude speaks about this in verses 22 and 23. Some have compassion making a dissension and others save with fear pulling them out of the fire having even the garment defiled by the flesh. And we ought to try to see sin from God's perspective. And here's what it is. God loves the sinner and God hates the sin which harms us so bad. Let me ask you a question. Very simple. Very, very simple. Do you have sin in your life that is laid to your charge? Do you know about it? If you're not a Christian, every sin that you have ever committed is still laid to your charge. From the time you became accountable to right now, every one of those sins is charged against you. But you can be forgiven of those. Every one of them. You come forward and you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I'm repenting of my sins. I'm turning my life around. I have now the right attitude and I'm going to do what's right the Bible teaches for us to be baptized for the remission of our sins. Those sins are washed away, Acts 22, verse 16. Now, if you're a brother or your sister in Christ, and their sins laid to your charge, there's two ways to deal with them. their they're private sins between you and God, maybe attitudes of the heart... You need to get on your knees and you need to pray to God to forgive you and you need to change your life. But if there are sins which others are aware of and you're aware of them and you know they need to be dealt with, it's time for you to take care of that. Don't rationalize it. Don't justify it. Don't minimize it. Repent of it. If you need to respond, come and together as we stand and sing.